for me, that is what I needed. It's because I didn't want anyone to have ownership of a thing that was still so young in my mind and so young in creation. I knew that eventually I would bring in uh, other stakeholders, but I needed to be very clear on what my principles and values were. Part of the thrill of hosting Unbossed for me is witnessing Black people create avenues of inspiration and income where none existed before. Also, just understanding the preparation and the process of growing a business and pivoting when necessary. This week, I get to sit down with another one of these incredible trailblazers, Dr. Lakeisha Hellman, aka Dr. Key. This woman is an educator through and through, and she's always been passionate about uplifting her community. Dr. Key is committed to excellence. And one of the things I love most about her story is just how she called upon her own village to help grow the village market and how she and her team are thinking about and caring for the community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Not to mention how she and her team have responded to the racial unrest throughout the country. How has the village market continued to thrive even through a global pandemic and a national revolution? Well, keep on listening to hear that story. And stick around afterward for a bonus boss segment with Bridget Coulter, founder of Blackbird House in Culver City, California. Blackbird House is a co-working collective for women of color and their allies. So welcome. I'm so excited to be talking to you, Dr. Key. Um, how are you feeling? What's going on right now? You know, I'm well. Presently, okay. I'm well. I know, but I'm sure like everyone, it has been an ebb of flow of, of emotions. But today in this moment, I'm well. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, cons- all things considered, it is a challenging time. So I really, really do appreciate you being available and just, you know, giving me whatever energy you want to give. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I've been, I've been excited to, this is a part of self-care. This okay. is how, yeah, this is therapy no. for Black girls. That makes me feel so good. Thank you. Good. So I want to get into, of course, your journey um, as not just an entrepreneur, but as an educator, as a Black woman, as, you know, this powerful figure in the community. I don't know if you would describe yourself as that. I hope <laughs> you would. Um, as I look at your beautiful face and I see, you know, you getting a little shy, but you are. Um, but before we get to everything, the first question I'd like to ask everyone that's on the show is, tell me about your very first job, that first time you got some money for, you know, your services. My, I, we will go all the way back. So all my the way first back. Job, yeah, Number my one. first job was with the Boys and Girls Club. Okay. How old were you? I was 15, I believe. 15 wow. or 16. That was my okay. first official job. I asked to volunteer and so um, the boys and girls club was new in my hometown in mississippi so i asked to volunteer and i was there almost every day and by the summer the program director said guess what i'm going to give you a job wow yeah so i was either 15 or 16 if i recall correctly so it sounds like i mean with an organization like that community and just that kind of I guess that kind of kind of giving nature has it sounds like it's always been in you. 
It has. I mm-hmm. I love us. I love people. It's. I think there's certain people that have like a servant energy and spirit, and that is not something we choose. We're selected at birth to do that thing, and so Boys and Girls Club and everything I've done after has all been consistent. Yeah. Did you have um, experience with that a little earlier in life? Like, what about your parents or? Your caregivers, were they very community driven, very servant, like that servant energy? Yes. <laughs> they, <laughs> they are that. Yes. In Mississippi, number one, I will say Black people are quite communal. Um, yes. The village, community, tribe, this people actualize this every single day. So though they wouldn't call themselves that, they wouldn't say that they're servant people. They're just very responsible to really be their brothers and sisters keeper. So I saw it from my great grandparents while they were working on their farms to my grandparents uh, who are entrepreneurs and to my, and to my parents, I've always seen them exemplify a level of selflessness as long as it pushes everyone forward. So you made your way from Mississippi to where you are now. (laughs) Yes. The great city of Atlanta. Yes. So when did you decide to make that move? And I'm asking that because I know Atlanta is such a big part of your business and your community and the people that you serve. So how did you make it to Atlanta? And also, why is Atlanta so important to you? I made it to Atlanta in 2011. And I had come back and forth from Mississippi to Atlanta for years I've done summer programs, had friends here that I went to Tougaloo with, also moved to Atlanta, so I would come and visit. But the move happened. My mother is the person who issued the move for me. I was staying in Mississippi, teaching in the Mississippi Delta, and she would continue to say to me that you, your work, your calling is not here. I know that you're trying to stay home and stay close to me but you have to go. And she was sick at the time. So I was really reluctant, but she kept saying, if you love me, you will fly. Wow. And how can, how can you not fly? A lot of good pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're close and when your parent is sick, that's, um, that's a lot, you know, it's a lot to leave your, your beginning, your roots, your base and start over again at, any age, let alone, um, how old, how old were you when you decided to move? I was 28, almost 28. Yes. It was time though. It was, it was time. What was really holding me back is because I wanted to stay close to my mother and I want to stay close to my father and my little sister at the time. So I'm, I'm happy that she gave me a loving nudge because she was absolutely right. My life opened up when I could experience beyond Mississippi. Okay. So can we talk about what did that opening up involve? What um, what were some of the, not just challenges, but what were some of the growing pains? We'll say that, <laughs> that maybe you went through at around 28 when you left that secure place and you, you know, ventured off into the unknown. Yeah, I left the secure place of love and a, yeah. a secure place that I was already nurtured and accepted. I... By the age of 28, I had already taught for seven years. And yeah. so I had a great level of experience. I climbed the, the, the ladder that teachers want to climb. And I'd gone into administration. So Atlanta, I, I wasn't the, the cool teacher anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to start from, this is a huge city, progressive city. So I had to start completely over. I had to 
create a new experience, a new life for myself. And the one friend that I had here wasn't here when I moved. Yeah. So I had to establish a new tribe, um, new identity in the sense of how did I want to show up in this space? I was very comfortable with how I, I was, I was very clear on what my work was in Mississippi, Atlanta. It was just a whole new, a new canvas for me. Yeah. Um, so I am definitely, I do want to get into, I'm going to back up a little bit. I want to get into you teaching before all this, but for anyone out there who, you know, whether they're 28, 18, 38, whatever, and they're thinking about leaving their roots, um, leaving their base, where they're from, their loved ones, what advice do you have for them? I think you have to remember that you're not leaving. You are just continuing the journey. So I don't, wherever we have had love and experienced love, that doesn't physically leave because the states change. Any work that I've done in, in, in Atlanta only multiply the work that I did in Mississippi. Yeah. So how we think about transition has to change. And so I encourage folks to, if it's going to allow you to be fully yourself, then you have to go. Yeah. Even your greatest work where you're no longer supposed to be would never be enough for you. You would never be satisfied. So it's better to go and experience all that you're supposed to do so you can do a greater work with where your roots live. Because I will always be a Mississippian. But to be to do a greater work for Mississippi, I needed to li- live and experience Atlanta. Mm. That's good. That's great advice. So let's go back. I'm going to back up a little bit. Teaching. When did you kind of figure out that that was, I guess, the beginning stages of your calling, so to speak? And... Um, can you kind of talk about your support system at that time that you had, you know, to kind of help you push along in that way? Yes, I was finishing up. It was my senior year in college. I was majoring in English and history. I'd gone back and forth if I was going to go to Brown University for my master's or stay in Mississippi and teach in the Mississippi Delta. And the decision to stay and teach in the Mississippi Delta is because my mother was, it was her second year of being sick. And so I knew that I could land a job. I ended up going to teach at my father's high school, really small school in the Mississippi Delta. But I remember it was third or fourth grade. And this is when we did things like, you know, career day. I don't know if that's what it's called when when you're young, but (laughs) whoever you want to be. You remember this? Okay. So, yes, that thing that we did way back then um, as as eight or nine year olds having an idea of who we wanted to be. Who we want to be, which I mean, right. you kind of, I think you can still kind of have a little hint. Mm-hmm. But if we're to make you the way they're then forced to kind of go on that same path, as opposed to exploring other things, like I think, whew, I could go on and on. I'm not going to, I'm not, you're not going to take it there, but, <laughs> but I, I do- slightly want to take it there, but yes. <laughs> And I also think sometimes for kids who don't know, you know, what they want to do, and that's perfectly fine. I know adults that are figuring things out, but they've also done a lot of interesting, wonderful things along that journey. And I don't know that just that pressure that we put on kids, it, it's not, it's not good. It's yeah, not it's good. not good. <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather the model, let's show young people everything that they can be. 
yeah. and give them an opportunity to choose mm. rather than having them choose based on the limited things that they've ever experienced. At nine years so, old. At nine years old. <laughs> Yeah. So at nine years yeah. old, I went to school and said that I wanted to be a teacher and it never left. Even to this day, if you ask me what's the greatest thing I've ever done in my life, it will be the years I spent in education. Wow. Um, so now my father did not want me to teach. He was like, you're far too smart for that. I want you to be a doctor. I want you to do all these things. But my mother always said, if, if you want to teach, just do it with love Yeah. and don't get stuck. So okay. I end up teaching in the Mississippi Delta. Good advice. Um, can you kind of get into what is it about, about teaching that you love? Why? How did this? I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories. I have friends that work in education. Um, all of them love it. But I do hear a lot of different different challenges. Yeah. So the, the challenges of education is the, is, the, is the institution of education. Mm-hmm. I bet any teacher your friends, if they say that they have a resistance to education, it's because they're being forced to teach in a very traditional box um, that do not echo their beliefs. Mm. So now when I, what I love about teaching is the experience of learning together. I love that moment when I saw my children in the Mississippi Delta understand who Asada was. Yeah. understand. Yeah. It's, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. And you could see them coming and, and, and before my eyes, I saw them affirming a little bit more their blackness mm. and not blackness as it was defined in, in the books, in the literature books that I was teaching and the traditional things that we have to teach, but it's just such a humbling space to be a sharer of knowledge. Those are still some of the best experience of my life to see young people who have failed at several things. And then you're meeting them where they are, showing them where they can be. And now they're walking across the stage to graduate and they're crying because no one else in their family has ever had that, that experience. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I've experienced, you know, athletes, who were amazing. They could score all, all the touchdowns yeah. and couldn't read anything that I shared. And I remember the after hours in the Mississippi Delta, I believe my classroom opened, opened up until seven o'clock PM. So when they got out of practice, they could privately read and we would read Dr. Seuss books together yeah. because the compassion is, is seeing them, where they, seeing them from where they are. And they may have ambitions of going to the NFL with love. I tell them this won't be possible if you cannot read or pass your graduation test. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've experienced young, young people read Dr. Seuss every evening. And then in May, they're so proud because they're writing full essays. And now they're reading Othello and could see themselves as that king in graduating. Wow. Just think, just you talking about it and seeing your face, it, you, it's, I can see you light up. Um, so can we kind of get into, I guess, the economics of being a teacher? Because um, I do like to talk about numbers, and I think that's something we don't talk about enough, especially Black women um, in these careers that we're so passionate about and we're often 
a lot, I don't want to project, maybe you had a great experience, but a lot of times we're being underpaid. I see that head nodding. No, (laughs) (laughs) like, no, (laughs) you were working as a teacher. Um, do you mind me asking how much, how much were you making at that time? Absolutely. I, I'm a numbers person too. And I think this is how we, this is the important part of sharing knowledge so we can know how to advocate for ourselves. Yeah. So when I, my first teaching contract was like $27,000. And remember, I was 22 years old, so I did think I was rich. I was going to say, you thought that was, you was making me. I thought I was winning. Like, seriously. Like, seriously no, thought I was winning. I'm not, I'm not on that hourly life. I got yeah. a salary. <laughs> so that first salary was 22000 And when I left the Mississippi Delta and went to Jackson, Mississippi, I think the salary was around 38 or 39 But when I moved to Atlanta, that jumped to 60 65 Look at that difference. Obviously, yeah, but the difference was also education too. Yeah. yeah, I had degrees by by that point. You're known as being Dr. Key. There is a reason why doctor is in that title. So, did you feel that getting um, your advanced education was necessary for you to grow to go further, or was it something that you felt like you did for yourself? It's something that I did for my family. Okay. I I know that there is a certain badge of honor that you have, especially in Mississippi, especially in the Mississippi Delta, when you can share that your granddaughter, because this is my grandmother tells everybody, yeah. and and your daughter finished her doctorate. And so it wasn't for me, I've always been very clear that I was going to be successful. And I don't, I didn't think that I needed the, the things to be successful. I deeply believe in hard work and passion, mm. but I did that particular journey with getting my doctor a doctorate for, for my grandmother and her experiencing me graduating with my doctorate from Liberty university. And I lived in Lynchburg for some time. Her, that experience, I remember her crying because she had never lived to know someone who came out of her bloodline with, with a doctoral degree. And so all the years that she was in the Mississippi Delta, rich is truly the apartheid South, uh, laboring Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws and limping in the cotton fields. Ooh, yeah. It is the least that I could do. Yeah. And that's how I feel about anything that's greater than us that is going to push our legacy forward. It was the least I could do. I understand that. Um, was it, I mean, so you were doing that doctorate, uh, around like how old, what age I do like, I like ages so I can kind of mm-hmm. get timelines and all of that too. So I started my doctoral program at 29. Okay. At tw- yeah. 29 years old because I finished my master's from the university of Mississippi at 26. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm going to assume being on a teacher's salary, getting a doctorate is not a an easy thing to do. Um, I often hear a lot of stories uh, from wildly successful women who are still kind of burdened by educational debt. Did you have to do loans to be able to afford that degree? Or also, how were you able to balance that, especially at this time of your life? Yes, for my doctoral degree, that was my first time ever getting academic loans. 
Got it. So from Tougaloo College to Ole Miss, I was able to go on scholarship. And that the financial burden of getting this higher higher education currently is the only debt that I have. Right. right. <laughs> Isn't it the irony in the juxtaposition really of getting is. a higher education will put you in if really in a lifetime of debt. It really will. It really will. Yeah. It's kind of like how else do we further ourselves without that burden? So I don't know. It's it's a weird, it's a challenging thing to think about because I, I love where I'm at and I appreciate that and I value it. But whew, when them loan payments come through, girl. Yes. And, and they come through consistently. They come through. They come through. They have not stopped. And it's yeah. definitely, I mean, again, and, and even being in this kind of a role with Essence, like I, it's something that I feel just compelled to ask more because I don't, I don't hear enough about it, but I know all my friends got debts. I know, you know, there's people that I've worked with, they have these, these burdens and I just, I, I want to know more who else has this, who else is dealing with this. Um, yeah. I think we can always make the assumption with any, yeah. with, with women who have the badges of life, there was a sacrifice that comes with that. So everything that we celebrate quietly, there's a sacrifice that we're still paying to even be positioned in a certain way. Yeah. Girl. Anyway. Okay. So let's speed up a little bit to you being in Atlanta. And when did you know that it was time to, I guess, transition into being an entrepreneur? Um, Where did your marketplace, where did this idea kind of come from? Walk me through that journey. Yeah, so I fast forward, I moved to Atlanta teaching yeah. in Cobb County, and I'm a market lover. Um, I do my shopping at farmer's markets. That's, yeah. that's my vibe. Those are my people. And what I realized, I, I go to the Dogwood Festival every year. And if COVID wasn't a thing, I would have gone this year. What's the Dogwood Festival? Dogwood Festival is a huge art festival that happens annually uh, in May. And here, here in Atlanta, but with all of these top artists and makers from all over the world, hundreds, I literally counted three or four black people. Wow. And I wondered how can Atlanta be the black Mecca in this high grossing festival did not have black artists. You ask questions long enough, then you you start to assess the roots. Yeah, the roots is that this festival is not curated by black people. Yeah. So wow. if if black people are in the space, right, it's because they were selected, but it wasn't created for them. And I'm not saying that this was intentionally by design. It's, it's essentially the curators have an, have a worldview of what they think is valuable art. Period. Mm-hmm. I'm not mad at that. Yeah. This is what I realized, and this is my theory of change in all things. I don't beg people for access or space. Create it. And so in Atlanta, I didn't overthink it. I did not have any experience with putting on marketplaces, putting on large events. I knew that I had a lens for excellence in diversity of Black culture and Black makers, so I I could see what it would be and what it would feel like, but I'd never done it. I didn't overthink it, though. I shared with my closest friends that I'm going to create this big event in Atlanta. And remember, I didn't know a lot of folks at that time. 
And um, how long ago was this? This was four years ago. This was in 2016. And you hear the you hear the stories a lot about starting something from scratch, and you don't, you know, there's permits involved, and there's there's all, all the things, red tape, and uh, handshaking, and ego, you know, <laughs> in order to make sure these things even get off the ground. So yeah, that's absolutely, a huge undertaking. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think about how huge it was because I didn't want to be intimidated. So I went, I just moved forward rather naively of what I was going to create. I, I asked, I did a small, what we will call now crowdfund. Crowd I sent out and asked to 10 of my friends and I told them in, in 90 days I was going to create this thing, friends and family. And I was able to raise, I think at that time it was like $3,500 for the first venue. I raised yeah. that within 48 hours. And so I drove to the venue, signed the contract, and I had 90 days to get this together with wow. vendors and, yeah, all, all the things that it takes to put on uh, on an, an event. But I wouldn't, I just don't overthink. I will say being a professional for so long, it helped me kind of reverse engineer once I put out what I was going to do. Okay. I made sure that I did the research. I made sure that everything was organized and structured. And I had a very clear vision of what the village market was going to be. Okay. Okay. That's, I mean, that's important. A clear vision. Um, and structure. And, oof, girl, structure too. Yes. <laughs> um, did you have a support system? Yeah, my family and friends. Okay, great. And what were they, they what were their roles? They were working the front desk for me. Some yeah. of them just just now lost their jobs in that because <laughs> I was able to hire people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, but my my friends were my first marketing people. Everything that it took to produce that first event, if you saw someone working there, it was someone who loved me directly. So I I'm grateful for a support system. Back to that theme that you talked about earlier about love. And just there, because that's definitely, it sounds like a, a heavy theme and something you're very rooted in. So um, were there some challenges, I guess, working with people that you were close to that you kind of had to get through? Or was it, I guess, kind of smooth sailing? It was smooth. It was smooth sailing, actually, because I gave everyone clear roles on what I needed them to do. Hmm. And what they worked on were, were things that I was not good at. So it wasn't it wasn't any overlaps there. Okay. Yeah, and I think it when we have interruptions, it's because there's an overlap and the ego steps in. Yeah. But I was very clear on um, these are my talents, these are my friends' talents. This is what I need you to do, and this is the this is for the limited time that I need you to do it. So yeah. they wouldn't be overtasked and overwhelmed because this was my baby, this was my vision, and the challenges that I had were actually in the city of Atlanta because I was trying to create create this whole experience, this nighttime experience that, that was around Black excellence and entrepreneurship. It wasn't just a pop-up. Yeah. I was very clear that I'm mobilizing support around Black-owned businesses. I had done the research and I saw how many Black businesses could not scale simply due to not having funding. Yeah. But I, I use what I've seen my whole life, that people fund legacy businesses. Customers fund legacy businesses. So I wanted to bring excitement around consistent support of Black businesses. I, I had to make sure, though, 
that there was a clear valuation process. The businesses were being um, vetted. The businesses were being trained to showcase. So it wasn't just a feel-good thing. I was very purposeful with what I was trying to do and what problem I was trying to solve. And I think sometimes where the struggle comes from is just the over, like overlap of ego and things like that and no clear direction. But the yeah. challenges that I had was being still somewhat new to Atlanta, especially new in a Black entrepreneur space, yeah. and creating space for myself where it wasn't competing with any other legacy events, pop-ups in the city, that I was really striving to do something, what I saw in my head, something a little different. And so initially there was resistance because people couldn't see this thing, what I was striving to do. The village market is a nighttime marketplace. What do you mean when you say resistance from the community or from, you know, um, who, from who? I had resistance at that time for, for from some Black-owned businesses, okay. some Black leaders in the community, because um, I was rather still new to the city. So it's like, yeah. who is this lady? You're like, who is, who is this, this woman from Mississippi? Right. And what's she trying yeah. to do? What? She, yeah. This interloper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you- I experienced that. Did you kind of have to win them over? Did you work to do that? Or was it like, you know what? I guess I can't rely on them. They'll see the vision at some point. I'm going to just keep it moving. Yeah, I I looked at them and I looked at them with love because they're my peers. But I also looked at them the same way as I did with anyone else. I don't fight to win over. I create my thing and I do it well. If you create something and you do it well enough, people will come. And I don't have to, I didn't have to keep trying to explain what I was striving to create. I just had to do it. And so the village market ended up being a very unique experience because it's a nighttime marketplace. In 2016, all the food, all the food was plant-based, still is. All the products were 100% all natural. And so fast forward to 2020, plant-based foods are cool. All natural products are cool. But in 2016, it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. It's crazy how quickly things, how how quickly time catches up. I'll just say that. (laughs) So, um, how, how much did it take when to get this off the ground? Like, did you, what was that process like in terms of, um, getting funding, getting loans, money that you've saved? Can you kind of break that down a little? Yes. So I didn't get any, any loans, or any investors to create the village market. That initial $3,500 that I got from my friends and family, um, I hadn't accepted any money from anyone. I kept my job. At this at this time, I transitioned to the Department of Education as a senior researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used my funds to fund my business. And that's just the model of bootstrapping. For me, that is what I needed. It's because I didn't want anyone to have ownership of a thing that was still so young in my mind and so young in creation. I knew that eventually I would bring in uh, other stakeholders, but I needed to be very clear on what my principles and values were. And I believe sometimes early on, if you bring in too many investors early, what you initially wanted to create has been distorted. Ooh, yeah. I got a little experience. We're not going to get into that, but... But it's a it's a harder journey. Yeah, yeah, it is. It definitely it's a is. harder journey. The bootstrap rate um, model, you really have to be committed 
to Mm -hmm. the long-term win and running a marathon and not sprinting. So I'm not against anyone getting capital or investors. It just wasn't for me. Yeah, understood. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I can also see how um, how assertive you are about, you know what I mean, about those values and the, just the way you express that even here. I can see that. Um, yeah, it's my it's my compass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like shaking my head, like girl, like I I get it. I I it's and it's also I think when you're passionate about something and it's it's yours, you want it to be that vision. And when you start involving too many other people, you start to see that vision just kind of dissipate a little bit. Um, in some cases, not all. But I do think that can be, you know, that can be really hard to get through. So earlier you did mention, you know, it being just long-term, long-term thinking. So what what's the long-term vision for this marketplace? And also, it's 2020. Um, can you kind of get into how things have had to change or how you've adapted or just challenges that you've been through going, been going through? Yeah, so covid the vision board um, that I had in my mind for the village market in 2020. So COVID stopped all that. And I had to make an aggressive pivot. I believe it was March 13th. And I believe I was one of the first businesses um, beyond like corporations in the city of Atlanta to announce that we wouldn't be canceling our events. We were going to simply pivot. Yeah. And so that pivot looked like for us, what we're all doing now is existing in this digital space. So I curated within two weeks, I built a digital platform to have my, what would have been my March 29th marketplace. Yeah. And that onboarding process of getting the small business into a digital space. Oh my goodness. I learned so much and I probably got some great lots in the process. Okay. All right. But, But we've been pivoting to make sure that services that we provide businesses are services that they need. Okay. If we're going to exist in this space, uh, the BC, the, the COVID space, where everything is mostly digital, my job is to build strong entrepreneurs, to build small businesses that can sustain. We've been working to get them the resources that they need in order to exist now in, in the virtual world and have top tier classes so they can so they can make that pivot. We've also another thing that I've learned through working with entrepreneurs and helping them pivot is there's so many fiduciary things that we didn't know. Okay. And and I learned this because businesses were applying for all the loans, the relief funds, and they weren't they were not getting them. And rather than being upset with the system, and I, it's all fair to be upset with the system, I really wanted to understand systematically what was failing black businesses. And there were so many structural, there are so many structural things, especially in financially taxes and stuff like that, that black businesses are at least the the ones I work with have not been consistently doing. So we've been doing a lot of finance classes. Okay. Okay. That's great. Especially, I mean, whether or not you're an entrepreneur, you know, like everybody, I think everybody can definitely benefit um, so like, has this kind of changed the entire vision of the company? Can you, like, I'm not hearing enough about 
those challenges, I think right now from, um, from smaller black owned businesses, they're very, very real. Um, a lot of it is like, oh, you know, corporate, these big companies letting people go and going through those challenges. And as much as, um, you know, companies are, they're people, <laughs> I think there's, I want to hear more about that from small businesses, because when you let those people go, they're, they're typically essential. You need those people. You're a big company. You can let go, unfortunately, like a whole department. Um, obviously, no one is really replaceable, but those companies can survive. They can figure it out. Um, how are you getting through that? And also, what did some of the, that scaling back look like for you? So the vision, the, the vision has truly changed um, in the sense that it has gotten better. This has really forced us to have a stronger programmatic arm to, to we see now, we, we are able to assess the problems within Black businesses. It's, it's just much more defined. So we're very clear on what type of classes we want to offer because when we are not doing big marketplaces, we have classes um, bi-weekly through the village market. Now, what that scaling back looked like for, for my team and myself, I had to reduce hours per se but how I help my team pivot, I help them get other contracts. That's so, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love them. And yeah. I could not do any of my work if I didn't have them. And so right in January, I did a retreat with my team and they thought the retreat was going to be all for the village market. And it wasn't. The retreat was for their personal goals yeah. and the things that they what they wanted most for their life. I know whatever they give me is 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 really for this season. Anytime you're working towards somebody else's baby, it's seasonal, right? Absolutely. So we did this big <laughs> retreat so I could really go into their heart space and vision space to understand what their big dreams were. So when I understood that pivot would be it would, that COVID would be here and that we would have to make hard pivots, I went back to what they told me in January before there was a crisis, and. I started to recommend them for um, for other contracts so they could still work with the village, but also have other revenue streams coming in. And that has been that has kept my team fully on board yeah. with the village and that's has good. also brought in some other funding opportunities for them. Yeah, Ooh, that's good. That's that's great. That's really amazing. Um, so, of course, um, the day that we're talking um, it's just after kind of a, a lot going on in Atlanta over the weekend. Um, I mean, of course, like we've been talking about COVID, but with everything that's been going on with Black businesses around the country, specifically in Atlanta, um, some have experienced um, looting. Some have also um, had to shut down because of this. They, you know, they thought things were going to open back up. What are your thoughts? What are you feeling right now? What are you seeing in Atlanta? Um, and have you personally been impacted by anything that's happened from this period, I guess, in recent weeks? I was sharing with a good friend this morning, fellow business owner, that I'm so grateful to be alive right now, to be present in this moment. We are experiencing change. Yeah. And because we're experiencing change, our emotions is what we talked about at the top of the call is, yeah. is the ebb and flow. There are some days I'm extremely inspired 
And there are moments when my spirit is dissipated because you can only see and hear so much. There has been a state of unrest um, in Atlanta, but this unrest is across, across this country at this point. I'm grateful that there is unrest. I'm grateful that people are protesting. Yeah. I'm grateful that we are no longer afraid to use our voice and to exist in a space of discomfort, to march the streets of Atlanta, to advocate for people that you do not know because intrinsically they're us. So I don't, I can't say enough that I'm so happy to experience this and I'm so happy that we're angry. And yeah. that is lingering. Yeah. This is yeah. where change. Yeah. So I don't yeah. I don't see yeah. looters as looters. I see looters as I see anyone else who's been angry and fed up. Absolutely. And if anyone experienced us in the apex of our anger, there's no telling who we would be in no that telling. moment. There's no telling. Yeah. No telling. So yeah. I'm not I don't <laughs> believe your emotions. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it, I mean it's strange too, because even like even asking that question, like I have to, but I, I've spoken about this with a couple of business owners um, over the last couple of weeks in different places. And I don't like the word looters either. And mm-hmm. I also know, you know, a lot of our businesses, they've been, they've been stressed they've been impacted. <laughs> to mm-hmm. say the least. And I know some of them are dealing with some of those, those challenges, those repercussions and, um, so this and, is what I think when that happens, though. Yeah. If Black businesses are impacted, then it's our job as a Black community to assist those Black businesses when they've been impacted. Yeah, yeah. When there is war and unrest, great people are always affected, but they're not the target. Yeah. And so when you understand who your target is, then you know when when something happens that you did not intend to happen. I don't think any protester is out there seeking to injure a Black business, to make their life any harder. They are fighting so they can exist in a greater space. Then as a Black community, our job is to say, okay, this was the casualty of war. Let's go in and constructively fix it. Yeah. What do you see for Atlanta's, I guess, the future in terms of Black business? Can we kind of talk a little bit about just your vision for Atlanta and what do you see for black businesses in terms of thriving? I think thriving is highly contingent upon our everyday actions. And so systemically we can't, we can't change systemic racism. That construct is far larger than you and I individually and a few of us collectively. Yeah. Systemic racism has to be pulled from the roots and cut period. But what we can do every day is everyday people who love Black people and love Black businesses. We can consciously and intentionally buy from Black folks where it's a lifestyle. I was sharing with um, a colleague that Crest Toothpaste has literally, we are probably lifetime customers of them. We keep them open for business. We don't think anything twice about it. Imagine if we had the same type of consciousness for Black businesses that it wasn't an isolated day or a theme or a trend, that we, our, where we unconsciously spend our money is consciously on Black folks. That's how we thrive. Yeah. Now, 
but systematic racism, economic inequality is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Black business were not positioned to be progressive. They were positioned to always act and be in, be in a space of passiveness where we will always be reliant upon something else. So we can only be reliant upon that thing again. Yeah. So the system is not broken. It is doing it. It is doing well what it was designed to do. Yeah. It's yeah. Definitely, it's definitely not broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of black owned businesses and putting, you know, our money where it counts and you mentioned, um, what did you say? Like a, almost like a designated day. Juneteenth is coming up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got to ask you just a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of, you did really touch on it earlier, just about how we can better support our businesses and our communities. And that literally goes to, you know, looking at the everyday things that you use and kind of swapping that out. But what are what are some other ways that um, with just on the heels of Juneteenth that we can really support our communities? Um, and also, do you celebrate Juneteenth? Have you always? I, yes. And normally I I'm that. You, you can <laughs> feel it. <laughs> yeah. So normally, you know, just what a difference a year make. I was booked to speak at at least four different Juneteenth festivals last year. And so this time, last year, I was en route to Connecticut to speak yeah. at a Juneteenth festival there. But yeah, I'm a celebrator of, of all things us. Absolutely. Because it's necessary. But the way that I think we can, um, the way that I know that we can support Black businesses is supporting where our gifts are. You have a gift for writing and to seeing and seeing things beyond like what you see, you're able to articulate that on paper, which is a gift. And so how you support is making sure every every story story that you tell is as, as honest as it can be and exemplifying Black excellence as the highest as, as you can write. And for me, if my gift is lifting Black entrepreneurship and talking very loud about it, <laughs> I need to make sure my facts are straight. And yeah. that I'm giving people actionable items and not just filling them up with hope or leaving them with emotions, but nowhere to nowhere to to take it. So we have to support at this place where our gifts exist. I think everybody has to be involved in, in this process. There are people who are lifetime supporters of whatever they support. Go put your support in who, who you are behind a cause that would help our people. So that's, that's a, a high level answer. Yes, to... great answer. Okay, <laughs> I'm 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 inspired. I always like to kind of close with two very simple questions. The name of this podcast is called Unbossed. Clearly, I invited you on because I think you're unbossed. You meet my definition of that. Uh, but can you tell me what does the word unbossed? What does that mean to you? And also can you just tell me who inspires you that also is unbossed, dead, alive, or fictitious? Any Black woman? Unbossed to me is having freedom in, in my mind and not being policed in my own soul to be who I'm supposed to be fully. Having a sense of 
creating what I see, what I feel my calling is, and doing it my way unapologetically is being unbossed. And having the capacity to work with other people. There's such a strength and superpower in collaboration. And I only think those who feel that they have to always be the boss of things is the reason why they cannot collaborate. Okay, I love it. And um, and who, what Black woman out there is unbossed to you? Oh, there's so, so many. You can so, my good, yes, so open many. <laughs> yes. So, presently, and who was also a, a dear friend of mine, Pinky Cole, uh, yes. Slutty Vegan. She's so amazing. She's amazing. So, she's one of my favorite entrepreneurs and actually one of my favorite friends. Yeah. Um, Stacey Abrams. I I love for people, I love people who live for something that that is so much greater than them. Yeah. Fighting for us to have the, the right not to vote before I vote to be counted. That is lifetimes worth the change. Huge. And huge, huge, huge. huge. Yeah. Toni Morrison is my forever hero, though. Me too. Yeah, I I love her in a way that I hope my work, in, in a small glimpse, mirrors hers. Yeah, she was so intentional and so full in who she was. Yeah, and very much like operated like like you from a place of love, of love for her. Yes, people, of love. love for her people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, you make me tear up um, again <laughs> <laughs> for the second time. <laughs> Um, thank you thank you so much for your wisdom thank you for coming on thank you for your time and please continue to keep doing all of the amazing work that you're doing because it's like it's great to support it and um, yeah thank you I can't say that enough (laughs) thank you so much when I met you in Atlanta I said she's one of my people Uh, I know like there was a vibe there was definitely a great vibe and the people that you had around you, I just, I remember that. I definitely they're remember. Amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. They're real dope. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah your people, they're my people too. So. Right. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. So Dr. Key, um, where can everyone learn more about the amazing work that you're doing and how can they just find you? Where can they find you online? Yes, please be sure to... For all entrepreneurs and lovers of Black business, follow my village at The Village Market ATL. And we also have an amazing website, www.thevillagemarketatl. And if you want to personally keep up with me on all platforms, it is Dr. Key Hallman. Yes. And that's Hallman with two L's. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready for more career inspiration? As promised, Here's another bonus boss segment with Blackbird House founder, Bridget Coulter, sponsored by Pinesaw. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you for hanging around for this bonus career brief segment. I'm here with Bridget Coulter. Uh, Bridget is the owner of Blackbird House, which is in Culver City, California. Welcome, Bridget. Hi, I'm great. Thank you, Marquita. (laughs) Uh, Bridget is the owner of the Blackbird House of Coworking in Culver City, California. And we're going to dig into that space, her career, and just, you know, any tidbits of advice that she has for you know, my embossed listeners out there. So Bridget, first things first, yes. what exactly 
is Blackbird House. Thank you for asking. Um, Blackbird is a co-working space, but it's a little bit more than that. It's a collective. It's a private collective for women of color, and it's also Welcome to Allies. And it's about productivity, wellness, and community. And truly, it's just equal access for women of color to places in the workplace, for us to have work-life balance, yeah. and for us to connect with our community. That's the, the bottom line, is really connected with community. Yeah. Great. I love, um, there's a lot of co-working spaces out there and not all of them connect with the community. So I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> no, we're not going to name names. And, and you know what? They're connecting with their community and, yeah, you know, yeah. from their perspective. And, yeah. I, you know, I've been very welcomed by a lot of them. Um, and I think that that's part of it is like, we didn't have, and now we're starting to have more, but someplace that is our own home, which is why it's Blackbird House. Cause yeah. it's like a home. Yeah. I love that. Um, so as the founder of this amazing co-working space for women of color, um, what was really the pivot point that led you to want to even create a space like this? Well, yeah, thank you. It, it was really um, an, uh, this little time when I was working out of a co-working space, actually, between I do design build, I'm an interior designer, I build houses. I'm basically a serial entrepreneur, so I like to start a lot of things, but really to solve problems. So I had finished a project. I was living there. It sold fast. I, was, I moved my office there, and it sold really fast. So I had 15 days to move out, and I discovered the new, which has been going on for 10 years, co-working um, option for a quick uh, office space, and what? we weren't represented, frankly. Mm-hmm. We we were there, but in such a small uh percentage, it felt like I had, like I said before, I was very welcome there. Um, It was inspiring and productive. Mm. And I noticed that my small design team, we were getting a lot done, looking out at other founders and makers and entrepreneurs and educators, just doing things and like creating their own was inspiring. And I thought, what if, what if we had that for us, what it would look like if the tables were turned and we were still inclusive to allies, but that we were the majority. What would that mean? Yeah. So, I mean, what does it feel like walking into that space, you know, not just as the owner, but um, for someone walking in for the first time, for a Black woman uh, who's never been in a space like that and seen themselves reflected, what do you think that feels like? Well, thank you. The the experience has been intense, actually, Um, either from intense joy, people have come in and felt emotional. Uh, We're seen in this space. There's a shorthand. You walk in, you can let your hair down, or you can let your wig fly, or you can (laughs) let your extensions flow. And there's no question about who's going to touch your hair, you know, just just a simple. And then the uh, one thing that people say, which makes me the happiest, is that they walk in and they feel like they're at home and that they are seen. And we are Program, all of our programming is based on diversity, inclusion, and lifting each other up and networking each other. And it's just like this, it's a truly magic feeling to walk in and know that we cared about, we're, we are cared about, and yeah. that it's a big circle. Yes, I love that. So Bridget, I think for many experts and women that are working in wellness spaces and working around wellness, whether they have their own practice or um, they're in some various aspects of the industry, um, they often, what I've learned is they don't take, 
they often don't get the opportunity to take care of themselves, I guess, as much as they probably want to. So can you just talk to me about um, how do you protect your peace? How do you protect your sanity? That is such a great question. And I am not excelling in this department right now. No frankly, no you know, frankly. Um, but part of the inspiration for starting Blackbird was because I'm a workaholic and entrepreneurship is just, you know, it's a grind. And I respect and love and understand entrepreneurs and founders and people who run their company because you're always going. And I wanted to infuse that idea of wellness and that essential concept of wellness in a practical way. So we put it in the space. So we have meditation, we have yoga, um, we have uh, breath work classes, workout classes right there. So you have notes in the 20 minutes. So if I, if I, if we need to take care of ourselves and breathe and check in, even if we do it for 10, 15, 20 minutes, we can propel ourselves further. And if we don't, especially, you know, frankly, black women, yeah. We work hard. We push ourselves. We put everyone else in, in front. And I wanted Blackbird to put us in front and say, take care of it. Is that whole, like, put your, we hear it all the time, put your, your uh, mask yeah, on first <laughs> and then help somebody else. And, you know, I, I think that that's important for us. And and to forgive yourself when you're not perfect, because yeah, you just, no one's going to do this perfectly. And there, I just read an article about how our brains work in that we always need to change it because you get bored after a while and you just, that's why you get into these plateaus. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just really infusing nourishment into the ideas so that it's in your face and you can't forget it. Yeah. Um, another question related to that. Do you, are there any little things that you do daily that for yourself, whether it's um, meditating or any kind of exercise practice or just, yeah, is there anything that you do? Absolutely. Walk. That my favorite thing is my to just favorite. take it. That's it. That's like, you can do it. You walk out your front door. It doesn't have to be, you know, if you have a, 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 you can walk out your door, walk around the block or take, you know, I try to take a 45 minute to one hour walk a day, yeah. start early. It just starts my whole day. Right. And you, you get out in nature, you're, you're, you hear the birds, you're off your phone yeah. and your computer. And to me, that is like the thing. But if you can't do that, taking breaths, just stopping for 10 minutes and to do breath work, which is not that hard. It could just, yeah. it doesn't have to be wooey gooey. It can be wooey gooey, which is kind of fun. I like um, the wooey gooey. Like I'm from Berkeley, y'all. Like I'm going to be wooey gooey. So, but I'm like also practical. So yes. if it's just that I can breathe in this nose, hold it for five seconds and yeah. breathe out that nostril, then that's what we do. But breath and walking, those basic things for me are, are key. That's, that's great. That's also logical. It's simple. I, I appreciate that as someone yes. who sometimes I do get in those ruts and I also do, um, I know I need to be better about some wellness habits. And to me, walking is always something that feels good and it's very, and I know it's effective. So I do appreciate that little tip. So Bridget, you've been an actress, you've been a designer, um, and now, you know, you're a business owner, can you kind of talk about how you've been able to, um, I guess, pivot from all of these roles and also just what mental and professional obstacles did you overcome to be able to, you know, kind of handle all of these different industries? So thank you. Yes, I, I have 
done a lot of different careers. I followed acting. It was just my first love. I did plays in elementary school. I was like, I love this. So I still dabble in it, but it is not like riding a bicycle, y'all. You don't just get off and you jump in and think you're going to do a little guest spot and know what you're doing. Um, For me, because it's really deep work. You know, I really respect you want to understand the human condition and really like have this experience. Um, But for me, um, everything that I would try, I I love to solve puzzles. I Mm. I love to like be of service in a way. So I'm always exploring. I've been on the board of nonprofits. Um, We try to do our own philanthropy for the environment, just always being active. It may be just my personality. I love to travel. And from this vast experience, it leads me to a new thing. And it's just a question I'm trying to answer. And um, design has been something I've loved since I was 12 years old. I used to try to convince my mom to remodel our kitchen, but mostly, (laughs) I know that's crazy, but it's because I was trying to figure out how to fit a dishwasher because I was the dishwasher. Tired of washing dishes, right? I'm solving a problem. If I I can learn how to, and I remodeled it so cute on like that that blue and white graph paper, I had it down. I knew where the, where the uh, stove was going to go, where my mom laughed at me and we did not get the remodel and I kept washing dishes. Good job, baby. I'm so proud of you and your creativity. (laughs) No, did you know that we are working poor? So no, that's not going to happen. I got two jobs, but I ain't going to be able to afford a kitchen. So, but anyway, that's another thing. So, so back to the career thing, when I looked at uh, design, it was something that I had already done. I hadn't done this flexible office work, social space, community organization in a way for us. And if I look back on all the things that I have done, I've done art shows, I've done, I've produced a concert. Like, I just want to know how to do something. I want to know how to build a house. So I built a house and I started a design build business. But the pivot of it was always, the the beautiful part of it was like, I think I can do this and let's see if I can. And I would fall along the way. And also I failed a lot and I've embarrassed myself a lot. I've said stupid things. I've said beautiful things. And I just accept it. Like, I know my core is like, I want to do a good thing. I want to be of service. So if I mess up along the way, let's have a conversation about it. Um, And that resilience is important because I still wake up with imposter syndrome. Of course. course. And my husband will laugh at me because he'll go like, look at all these things that you've done. You've gotten into this level. And as an interior designer, you've you've built houses and resold them. And, you know, and you still, no matter what you do. Uh, that little girl. Is is that what it is? Is it are women? I wonder, are we, I guess there's no overarching answer for this, but as women, are we just kind of, I guess, conditioned in a way to feel that more than men? Cause you know, everybody feels it sometimes, but just, <laughs> I love that your husband, you know, calls you out. Cause he can see it. And that's usually how it goes. It takes someone else to kind of call you, call you out a little, like, actually, no, you you're doing this, 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 like, are you crazy? <laughs> but it, you know, we still feel it. And I think that's, um, that's, ah, I hate that so much, but I know, but yeah. we get through it. Like we persist through it, but having your tribe that's like lifting you up is what's important. And that's mm-hmm. exciting about your community. If you really look at what our community is doing right now, at any point, most people are trying to lift each other up. The yeah. only time you're not is when you're in a fear if you're in a fear position where you think someone's going to take something from you, you get protective and fierce. But if you can look at that in another way and realize, oh, I see that that person's actually hurting. Let's have a conversation. I don't yeah. think you mean what's happening. So to me, communicating 
gets you through that. So if I feel bad, I'll get, I'll call on one of my resources. I'll, I'll call my therapist. Like I'm not ashamed. I think therapy, yeah. a counselor, a support group, a mentor, whatever you do to, to build a tribe of support, because there's your potential that you want to reach yeah. only happens if you're well. And, you know, sometimes things are hard. I feel like say that again, your potential <laughs> you want to reach it, it, you know, the wellness, it's important. It's it so is. Important. It's vital. And like, I see us, I see us working hard, killing it. So bright, so beautiful, so smart, like just getting it done. And sometimes we don't even see what we're doing. You may be in, in, impacting 10 people, yeah. but you don't realize that 10 people multiplies to thousands because it, it's yeah. just that effect. So what you've done is no small feat, you know, or if it's one person, it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter. Oh, amen. Um, so entertainment, it's, it's an industry where it can be feast or famine. <laughs> and I think we're seeing evidence of that, you know, right now in this pandemic, at what point did you realize um, that it was important for you to a become an entrepreneur, but B create multiple streams of income? Great question. I think along the way, I always had in the back of my mind, my grandmother said something, <laughs> which she meant something else about it, but I'm going to take it to this thing. She always said, always have a rabbit in the hole, baby. Yes. Always have a rabbit in the hole. Now she was talking about a whole nother thing, but <laughs> I kept that idea of like, always have an option, like say something doesn't work out you can pivot. There, there may be something you gather from that, that you pivot and utilize in what you do. And every step of that, like understanding, um, just it's again, back to resilience. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, the a part of it is like knowing that not just revenue, but building relationships mm. and you know, those, the, when you're young, you sometimes burn some and build some. And then as you get older, you realize how important the people that you're connected to are and you build that. Yes. And so what was the second part of the question? I think I just <laughs> elaborated on the first. Well, the, second part, the first is great. <laughs> the second part was just um, pretty much when did you discover that it was important to really create multiple like revenue streams? I think um, that's something it took me a little while in my crazy, <laughs> my crazy experiences as a working in media. Um, but I ended up freelancing for a long period on purpose mm. <laughs> because I just, I'm like, no, I want to make sure I got, as you, as grandma says, a rabbit in the hole. So yeah. I, think, um, I think a lot of us have to come to that realization, especially with age and experience. So I kind of just wanted to know what was there an experience that maybe you went through where you realized like, oh, you know what? I need to have another revenue stream or, you know, what kind of, what led you there? Well, it's, I think it started with my aunt who got me a job when I was working in high school, right near the high school. Um, and, and I saved up for college and I basically worked before it was legal and we won't name the company so they don't get in trouble. But, um, she was like, you need to earn money. And, you know, it's that guidance. She was one of my village mentors and, yeah that experience of working, even though I'd be mad, I would have an attitude sometimes, but I knew that like, I had this money that was my own that yeah. gave me a little sense of freedom. Like I could take care of something now through three or four years of working, all I earned was $3,000, which I think lasted me one. It, but, but at that time, school was, was only, yeah. school was, I went to UCLA. It was like $348 a quarter. So I could, I know it's a whole different thing. I'm older. 
it's a different price now, y'all. Sorry. Um, It was a public school. It was a public university and we, it was made it accessible. Um, But that, that idea of earning. And then when I got into school, I started acting um, right out of school, kind of doing commercials. And one of my friends, actually, Laron, who is an actor and his whole family like acts, he was one of my classmates. And he was like, you got to go and start working. And you got to, so I had a lot of people who were giving me, we just didn't have a lot of money. So we had to figure out ways. And from that experience of graduating and being an actor, you knew you had to juggle between that guest spot or a co-star part or a series whatever you were doing in between, you could, you know, you do a little bit of the unemployment dance, but that's only going to get you so far. Um, So I did try to work in a restaurant, but I didn't do so well. I got um, called in three weeks, called and told that, but it was a whole other reason, but he was, he was a handsy manager and I had a big mouth and I didn't accept it. So I did not get to keep that job. Um, But uh, all through it, I, I house sat yeah. in between houses because it's like, oh, I can't really afford rent. And my friend's like, okay, you can stay on the couch so long. And now you go into this, like, there's a lot of people in entertainment who were working remotely. So I would take care yeah. of people's cats and birds. So that was a, in, in, in a way to really save resources. But just be, it's about being resourceful mm-hmm. and exploring, like, what are my talents? What else can I do? I had this aptitude towards design and it, it ended up blossoming into this incredibly uh, boutique firm where I get to do super high-end homes mm-hmm. or a, a small kitchen, like whatever I've been able to do for good people is, uh, it's just, you, I didn't even know that it could be a career like that. So. Yeah, I, I love stories like that because I think um, something that I'm passionate about, I guess, is education when you're young, you know, for kids when they're younger, so they know all of these options that are out there for careers so they don't feel so pressured to, you know, just pick what one of five that were kind of taught early on. So I think it's important. It's important that you have that experience where you got into something you, you didn't even know that you wanted, you know, that it was there, that it was an option and here you are. So, and it also sounds like that is definitely an experience of course that you carry into Blackbird and into, you know, it's something very, very much a part of that, that whole journey. So speaking of being resourceful, um, I think we've seen so many statistics about just how hard it is for Black women to raise capital. Um, As an entrepreneur, um, you know, like to raise capital as an entrepreneur in comparison to their counterparts, (laughs) so to speak. So... Um, what have been your experiences seeking investors and also what advice do you have for other black female entrepreneurs about this process? Yeah. The, the first thing I'll say, cause I, I just love entrepreneurs. We're just, we just got to solve something or we think we're going to do something better. And usually we are, <laughs> we just got to get other people on board to, yeah. to understand how that idea can be of service in a way. So if you're here and you have this purpose and you have some idea and you have a unique way or a niche thing. One of the best pieces of advice I got for raising capital and going out and finding um, investors is you're not actually, if you go in and you really know what your product is and what you're offering, you're offering someone to join you in this exciting Mm -hmm. venture versus like, can you give me money? Which doesn't feel great. Like I, you know, there's a few, few people who are like, I love asking for money. I, do, I haven't met a lot of them. Yeah. It's ah. like the least, 
perspective. I like that perspective. But that perspective makes you feel like I want to give you, you will have ownership of this. You will have part ownership. If you want to participate, let's join on this journey and go, if you believe in this, let's make this together. So that, if you go in with that mentality, then you're offering someone an opportunity to support what you're doing Hmm. um, for one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) And then in terms of the statistic, it's terrible. And because of it and because of the awareness, there's so many people now fighting it. Like Arlen Hamilton, um, we have Portfolio, which is a women group. There's like funds within the the America Fund America, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of people doing women of color grouping up and becoming investors because they realize we have to invest. And if we invest, if we invest, we're going to look for people who look like us. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily it's there. Now we're learning like you have to participate and expand beyond your experience, especially if you're a white person who's investing people. And sometimes someone just has to make you aware of it because you're not racist, but you're not anti-racist, you know? So the difference. So it's, yeah. yeah, so it's complicated, but it's really unfortunate because the other thing they're learning is we just read this report. Uh, I think it came out even in November, how black women are the number one um, entrepreneurs, growing entrepreneurs, starting the biggest businesses and having the biggest percentage of success, no matter what level it is, because of the persistence, the work ethic, yeah. the the ability to just follow through and be resilient. Uh, so you're missing an opportunity if you don't invest in people of color. You're missing an opportunity for diversity that they're showing is profitable because let's, you know, investors are there to make money, bottom Absolutely. line. Yeah. And with my design business, I've made 25% on my design build business, I make 20 to 25% return on my, on my investment me and I walk around and they look at me like who is this person I don't look like I'm supposed to be Bob the builder but I'm like I'm Bridget the builder yeah and I build houses y'all so <laughs> it sounds like it really is about um knowing your value in a way and not yes. yeah because I think I think there is a difference when you're asking for something and you make it sound like it's a task for that person as opposed to like oh no you want to be a part of this like if you if you don't, you know, if you don't jump on, you're going to miss this opportunity. And like, you know, in a way you really do have to know just how valuable and how bomb you really are. To that's kind of, great. You know. That's <laughs> so, a great, that's the perfect yeah. way to say it. I love that. Re- recognizing your value. What yeah. you said, y'all. And you did, you did ask me about uh, my experience in investing. So yes. I've had a successful design build business and I have seen great things and I started with meager means and have seen like excellent and I wanted to give back and I wanted to be of service in a bigger way. So I self-invested in Blackbird and um, made it happen to this point for the first year. I was just like, I want to make this happen. I'm going to contribute what I have and give back and like see what we can build together. And with the plan that at year one or within the first six to nine months of operation that I would start seeking investors. Had my first investor call beginning of March, got my first um, early adopters. And I didn't have that. Ex- I had the experience of like first person I called said, yes. Okay. <laughs> and then second person was like, this sounds great. And then another, so it started out and then COVID happened. Yeah. Two weeks later. Oh and gosh. I was just like, pause. My investors are still with me, yeah. but I am 
really wanting to know, like, how do we pivot now? What's it look like? We have pivoted immediately because, again, yeah. we're resilient. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? But the experience of asking, going in with that attitude, the truth of, like, I know what this is and what we can do. Do you want to come along? Because I want partners, yeah. people who want to ideate with me, not just someone who's going to give me a check. Here's some money and like, no, you want, and these are, I mean, I wouldn't mind one person who would just give me a bunch of money (laughs) and not ask me any questions. I'm cool with that. Just one of you. Fair. (laughs) I mean, also like they're, they're investing in your company. So it's, they kind of, they make up, you know, they make up the the environment in a way they you're working with them. You're doing these things. They're, they're invested in you. So that, yes, that makes sense. Um, can you get into a little bit about how you pivoted with COVID in the midst of all of this craziness, this surreal time? Um, I'm just personally, I've noticed a lot of places, um, you know, whether it's co-working spaces, um, businesses that were brick and mortar and in wellness, they've been doing a lot more programming online and um, things like that. So can you just kind of briefly get into what some of that's looked like for you? Sure. Yeah, it's been pretty basic and simple for the brick and mortar side. It was pretty devastating because we had um, gotten to we we had a grand opening end of October. So we basically were operating four months in four months because of community, because of the collective, because of the support and love and the events coming out. Because a lot of things with our programming were live events that were beautiful with Deborah Lee, with Time's Up, with uh, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams. Like we just had the most beautiful programming, but the loss of, of that space was huge. And it, you know, three months, but the beautiful side is we'd have events for 25 to 150 people magic. Like the yeah. events were beautiful. I'd say 90%. And there may be been 10% that like, maybe we messed up on a little bit, but uh, we, we, we learned, we learned. Yeah. And, and because we had a physical space, we are, our goal and what we've been doing is e- evoking that feeling that we had of being together and infusing that into virtual programming. We pivoted immediately. We started with all wellness because we were all kind of in shock and there was a lot of fear about COVID. So I wanted to put Dr. Nana and she came on and gives us information and breath work. Gina Belafonte gives us meditation. So I did that. And now we're putting in the productivity business strategies. We're building a program to do, which when we, we'll probably have to do it virtual, but when we get back in space, we're going to have like career strategy partners and training and mentorship was always part of it. But now we have people who we've reached globally. We have someone sign in from UK, from uh, Sweden, from Africa, uh, from South Africa and uh, Zimbabwe. So they couldn't just show up at our space, but it's a global connect. So I love this part of it, this, this, feeling of it there's a distance obviously you miss that like hug part of it but definitely oh, we're feeling each other you know <laughs> good yeah. good I like hearing that um the name of the podcast it is unbossed uh so can you just kind of tell me first what does the word unbossed mean to you and then tell me about someone a woman um dead alive or fictitious, who's unbossed, who inspires you? Okay. So for me, unbossed is uh, the energy of this belief in yourself and like self-guidance. So not from an outside source, but that inside self-guidance, like I'm going to follow this path and make a way. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what it means to me. Um, And then the 
her, and it, and it reminds me of Sher- Shirley Chisholm's yeah. quote about bring your folding chair. Bring your folding chair. <laughs> bring your folding chair. So that, that to me is like, oh, oh, so she could be the boss. But also I feel like my grandmother, um, my grandmother is just, a, a, you know, she went to college when I was young. She had all these grandchildren and she didn't get to finish because she came from Louisiana and for other, got married young and, and yeah. didn't get it. She went to college and she like, I just remember her taking, um, sorry, high school, getting her high school graduation, dressing up to go take her high school graduation photo as my grandma. And I was like, she was already dope. She raised a family. She managed everything. So she's my unbossed. She led the way, guided everybody. And from that inspiration, I feel like, and she just like is the, has the good, the good in her heart. So for me, that was always like, be kind, try to do good things. And she's my hero. And she's in Louisiana. Yes, I love it. What's your grandma's name? Uh, Jessie. Well, I call her mom, but it's uh, Jesse Jacob. Yeah. Grandma Jesse Jacob. Yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Thank yes, you. thank you so much for your time and just, you know, for your wisdom. It's very, very much appreciated. Um, and also, I'm definitely going to be checking out some of these virtual programs over here in New York because I, I could use some breath work and some yes. yoga and, some, you know, some good wellness stuff and some inspiration. Looking forward. Yes, please do. Please do. Thank you for thank you for giving us a chance to talk to you. I appreciate what you're doing and the work at Essence is I've been a subscriber forever. Um, and, you know, the work is impressed that visibility us being seen is so important. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> so, Bridget, um, where can everyone learn more about all the amazing work you're doing and where can they follow you online? Uh, absolutely. You, the easiest way to reach us is Instagram. It's at the.blackbird.house. If you go there, it links you to our virtual membership, which we have a free membership and we have a paid membership, but you can survey at any level. Um, or you can go to our traditional website until we're in space that won't work as well, but it's www.blackbird.house. But again, Instagram is the quickest way to link to all of our things. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Very special thanks to this week's guests, Dr. Lakeisha Hellman and Bridget Coulter. Be sure to listen, download, or subscribe to more episodes of Unbossed. You can find Unbossed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple listeners, please be sure to leave me a review and let me know what you think. Be kind, but be critical. That's okay, too. Don't forget to hit me up on social at Marquita underscore Harris underscore. Be sure to use the hashtag Unbossed Podcast. I appreciate you. Thanks, guys.